Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move this Monday in a special Too Hot to Handle edition of the program, a critical week ahead for global markets. U.S. growth data may determine recession or not. Tech investors hope earnings will hit the spot. The Fed will hike rates. How much more to do? A lot. On Wall Street, can equities make further gains? Well, we have a good shot. Take a look at that green arrows for futures after last week's advance. The Nasdaq finishing up more than 3% last week, even with snaps, almost 40% snapback Friday. That weighed on other big social media names too. This week's list is vast. Apple, Meta and Microsoft, just to name a few, will report earnings this week. What the tech giants say about the current state of demand and the health of the economy will be key. Tech firms like Alphabet and Microsoft have already said that they will slow hiring. Plus, we know the stronger U.S. dollar has been pressuring profits, heightening those broader slowdown fears. The most crucial economic data point of the week will be out on Thursday when the United States releases its preliminary look at second quarter GDP, two quarters of negative growth, a very real possibility, but just don't call it a recession, or at least so says Janet Yellen. We'll discuss later in the show why with Adam Posen, the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In the meantime, positive action over in Europe after a weaker handoff from Asia. Big earnings on tap in Europe as well. Financial giants like Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse, plus major manufacturers like Daimler and Renault, all reporting this week too. The big economic focus in Europe, however, remains the war in Ukraine and how it's exacerbating the ongoing energy and food crisis. Lots of concern today whether Russia will hold its part of the bargain on grain exports. And that's where we begin today's show. Ukraine's infrastructure minister says Kyiv will be ready to resume grain exports this week. This despite a Russian missile attack on the Black Sea port of Odessa on Saturday, just 24 hours after a deal was brokered by the UN and Turkey to unlock trapped grain supplies. Minister Kubakov also confirmed that the ships will be escorted by Ukrainian military vessels and not Russian. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, as we discussed in great detail on Friday, there was no explicit ceasefire agreement included in this grain export deal, but it's implicitly required in order surely to be successful. Is this deal even still valid in light of what we saw this weekend? Yeah, I just talked with the infrastructure minister, Ukraine's infrastructure minister, who was the one in Istanbul who signed that agreement. And he feels from their side, they're still committed to it. Uh, They're sending a technical team to Istanbul at the moment to work with that joint coordination center, which will oversee the implementation and some of the inspections of uh, the grain vessels coming and going through through the Bosphorus. Um, He's very clear from their part, their intent is to continue. I asked him, why did he think that Russia 
had actually uh, fired these uh, cruise missiles, these very expensive and accurate cruise missiles into the port in Odessa. And he said he thought it was because Russia just wanted to show that they were the, 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 the big player, the main player, that they could still do this, whatever the terms of the agreement was. You know, Russia on the first hand told its interlocutor in Istanbul, uh, the uh, the Turkish defense minister, Russia's defense minister, told him that they hadn't fired the missiles. Then the Ministry of Foreign Affairs corrected the day after saying they had fired them, that they'd only fired them at uh, military infrastructure in the port. But the, the real understanding from the Ukrainian side is that the grain stores and the ships that will take that grain uh, in those ports are vulnerable to those Russian missiles. But they don't think uh, that Russia is, um, is going to try to scupper the agreement at the moment merely stress it. That's why they're committed to making it happen. But when I spoke to the uh, infrastructure minister on that precise issue, another point where Russia seems to be trying to strain the agreement and strain the understanding because Russia's foreign minister has several times over the weekend now said that it would be Russian ships escorting those cargo vessels through the Black Sea. Uh, the infrastructure minister told me very clearly that's not part of the deal and it's not going to happen. So we won't allow to do this. Our territorial waters and uh, our seaports, only Ukraine and Ukrainian Navy will be uh, will be there. So uh, if you're talking about uh, like inspections and all these issues, it will be in uh, near Turkey. It will be near Bosphorus and will be led by Turkey and by United Nations. So, so no Russian ships escorting no. the convoys anywhere along no the convoy? Russian ships at all in this process. So the benefit, obviously, of these shipments is for those needy parts of the world, third world countries where food prices have been escalating and wheat and other food commodities are in short supply because of Russia's war in Ukraine. But there is a knock on and a benefit for Ukraine's farmers. The agrarian minister said that he believes that right now corn prices for uh, Ukraine's farmers are going up about 20 to 30 percent because the price was down because they had no way to export. And he also believes that the wheat prices, the price that the farmers will get at the farm gate here in Ukraine, money in their pockets will go up, uh, is going up by about 10%. Ukraine expected to export about a billion dollars worth of grains uh, uh, over each month that this agreement is in operation, Julia. Yeah, and the Russians, of course, making inflammatory comments about the uh, Russian escort. But as we were describing as well on, on Friday, what's the incentive for Russia here and the, the financial benefits that accrue to them? Still wanting, it seems, the upper hand in terms of um, sending those missiles in um, and making a statement that way too. Nick, thank you for joining us on that. Nick Robertson there. Those exports critical, as Nick was saying, to nations across the continent of Africa in particular, many of whom rely on Ukrainian grain. And that's why Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is now touring with visits to Egypt, Ethiopia, Uganda and the Republic of Congo, countering accusations that Russia is causing and exacerbating a food crisis. Larry Madawo joins us on this. Larry, a poignant moment in terms of, a, I think, a PR campaign. And of course, many of these African nations have remained uh, neutral with regards to the Ukraine war. The question is, what are the alternative options? I know you've been having conversations with the administrator of USAID on what plan B, if this deal doesn't work, might look like. And that plan B is going to be critical here because mm -hmm. these countries in this region here in Kenya, in Somalia and Ethiopia, they're being ravaged by a drought, some of the worst on record. 
And that is why Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, is also here in Ethiopia. He started, he's here in, in Africa. He started off in Egypt, meeting the leadership in Egypt, but also the leadership of the Arab League, because Middle Eastern countries are also some of the biggest dependents on wheat and grain from Russia and from Ukraine. But then he's also been in the Republic of Congo in Brazzaville. He's been holding a press conference a short while ago. He's then off to Uganda and will be finally in Ethiopia, where the seat of the African Union is. So he will probably be meeting with leadership of the African Union as well. And he's been saying that Russia doesn't, ha doesn't have the bloody crimes of colonization that some of the Western nations have here in Africa. And he pointed out that Russia has long-standing relations with African nations, and Russia does not impose anything on anyone. So he's been praising African countries for their balance. Because as you remember, Julia, there are many African countries abstained from a condemnation of Russia when it invaded Ukraine. In fact, even one country, Eritrea, voted against that uh, UN resolution. So this visit is so important for Sergei Lavrov. He's been even calling it fake news, the idea that Russia is exporting hunger. And those are who, are who are suffering the most are here in Africa. He's really pushing back against that. And he's got many supporters here. Russia has got many supporters. He will be meeting with the President Museveni in Uganda. President Museveni has blamed high commodity prices there on the Russia-Ukraine war, but he's also a friend of Russia. State television in Uganda airs Russian, Russia Today, that propaganda outlet from Russia. So this, the close relations you see in some of the African countries with Russia. But I've been speaking to Samantha Power, the administrator of the U.S. Um, administration, the U.S. Uh, US aid, and she talks about trying to find an alternative way to find grain and wheat for depressed world markets, and especially for people that badly need it in these parts of the world, and calling out China for not doing enough to condemn the war, but also to contribute to the World Food Program's appeal for those who are facing mass starvation and hunger here in Africa. This is a moment for all countries uh, that play leadership roles in the international system, as the People's Republic of China uh, clearly aspires to do and has done in certain domains. It is for them, for all of us, uh, to show up uh, and to dig deeper than we have so far if we are going to prevent this crisis from becoming a catastrophe. How big is the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine into the current problem you're seeing in Kenya and Somalia and Ethiopia? In terms of food, just coming from Somalia, more than half of the wheat in this country, in the country of Somalia, comes from Ukraine. It is trapped in the port uh, of Odessa. 20 million metric tons of wheat and corn are trapped. So, you know, we can all hope and even pray uh, that the deal that the United Nations negotiated, but that it, uh, Russia immediately turned its back on by, by bombing uh, the, the port of Odessa, that that deal somehow sticks. Do you worry about Russia's commitment to that deal if literally just hours after it was signed, they're already bombing Odessa? And what impact would that have if they don't honor the end of the deal? Well, we have been living the contingency plan because there's no way you can trust anything that Vladimir Putin says. We are working with the Ukrainians on Plan B. Plan B involves road and rail and river and, again, you know, sending in barges and, uh, you know, adjusting the rail systems so that they're, they're better aligned with those in Europe so that it, the, the exports can move out more quickly. But there is no substitute for Putin allowing the blockade to end, his blockade to end, and the grains being sent out the most efficient way possible, especially because we've lost so much time. The world has lost a lot of time, Samantha Power says, and after her trip here in Kenya and Somalia, she's off to India. 
this is another way to try and find alternative sources of wheat and grain for the world. And they just announced a $1.3 billion, the U.S. announced a $1.3 billion extra humanitarian assistance for these countries here in the Horn of Africa because of that drought. But we're already seeing here in Kenya and across the region an increase in fuel and fertilizer and food prices because of the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, Larry, and fascinating conversation as well and the fact that the Plan B, which is other routes out of Ukraine, including rail and road, as difficult as they are, have to continue. Um, but we hope this, uh, this deal does bear fruit. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Larry Radawa there. Right, blistering heat waves, smashing temperature records across the globe, and it continues. Boston and Philadelphia are among the U.S. cities reporting record highs Sunday. 60 million Americans are under extreme heat warnings Monday. That's down from 90 million, however, over the weekend. And with the heat comes fires in Yosemite Park. A blaze has been raging since Friday. Thousands have been evacuated as 2,500 firefighters work to contain it. Over in Europe, forecasters say the fire risk in Spain, Portugal, Italy and Greece remains extreme as temperatures top 40 degrees Celsius. The battle against a fire in Greece's northeast is entering its fifth day. And in China, almost 70 cities are under the highest level of heat warning Monday. The red alert is issued when temperatures of over 40 Celsius are expected. And this is China's second heat wave this month. Selena Wang joins us. Selena, you've been talking to us basically on a daily basis. But the, the key point to understand here beyond the sheer scale of people involved is that temperatures in China have been rising faster than the global average. So it's increasingly intense across China. Exactly, Julian. What that means is that China is even more prone to these extreme weather events, not just the heat, but also flooding. You mentioned that more than 70 cities are under the highest heat alert. That means more than 104 degrees Fahrenheit. On top of that, you've got more than 390 cities and counties forecast to be sweltering in temperatures as well of 95 degrees and above. So all of this, like in other parts of the world, is a major wake-up call to China about the extreme impacts of global warming. Another state data point here, too, is that in China, average daily temperatures are at the highest since 1961, and many cities are also recording record high temperatures. And in China's far western region of Xinjiang, officials have said that high temperatures have accelerated glacial melting and caused natural disasters like flash floods and landslides. And if this heat wave continues, Julia, officials there are saying it could harm cotton production. That is a big deal because China is the world's second largest cotton producer, and 85 percent of the cotton produced in China comes from Xinjiang. And not just Xinjiang that's dealing with the double whammy of heat and flooding. Since May, dozens of people in southern China have been killed and millions have been displaced because of the severe flooding and landslides. And all of this, as we've been talking about, is another blow to China's economy and its people, which are still reeling from the impact of COVID lockdowns. Now, these unrelenting weather emergencies that we've seen in China in these recent years, they've been a wake-up call to Beijing. The government saying that climate change is one of their key targets, key priorities. But the question is, is all of this just too late? Yeah, critical question to be asking. And if you're looking for further inflationary pressures going forward, Look at cotton and clothing and um, that in addition to everything else that the uh, global economy is dealing with. Selena Wang, thank you for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. 
The UN is joining rights groups in condemning the execution of two pro-democracy activists in Myanmar. They were executed by the military junta following a trial that included two other men accused of terrorism. According to state media, Amnesty says the killings mark the first judicial executions in Myanmar since the late 1980s. Blake Essig has more. For the first time in decades, Myanmar has carried out judicial executions. On Monday, state media reported that four people have been executed by Myanmar's military junta, including two prominent pro-democracy activists and two others who had been charged with terrorism. Their deaths are the first of what some fear could be many more to follow. That's because Human Rights Watch says at least 114 people have been sentenced to death since the military seized power in early 2021. Since the coup, civilian cases have been tried in military courts with proceedings closed to the public. Trials that the United Nations and rights groups have condemned, saying these secretive military tribunals deny the chance to a fair trial and are designed uh, for speedy and almost certain convictions regardless of evidence. Following news of the executions, the acting Asia director for uh, Human Rights Watch said, quote, The executions were an act of utter cruelty that followed a grossly unjust and politically motivated trials. Well, a spokesperson for the United Nations called it a, quote, blatant violation to the right to life, liberty and security of person. The Assistance Association for Political Prisoners says that since seizing power, military forces have arrested nearly 15,000 people and killed 2,000 more. Well, the military has been accused of crimes against humanity by several international bodies. The junta pushes forward in its effort to crush the resistance and gain full control of the people of Myanmar, people who continue to resist. Blake Essig, CNN, Tokyo. Pope Francis is in Canada for what many are calling a long-awaited apology. He's expected to atone for decades of abuse by the Roman Catholic Church against indigenous children who attended residential schools. The Vatican is referring to the trip as a peninsula pilgrimage. Straight ahead, a dance of defiance. The show goes on for the dancers of Odessa's ballet amid relentless attacks on the city. And the FBI warns on Chinese tech giant Huawei, could it be a threat to America's nuclear deterrent? That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to the program as we brace for a first move flurry of key earnings and economic data, plus a rate move from the Federal Reserve this week, too. Not their first move, nor their last. U.S. futures pointing to continued gains on Wall Street after last week's solid advance. Sentiment holding up despite fresh signs of global economic weakness. Just released data shows German business confidence at a two-year low as soaring energy prices push the cost of manufacturing ever higher. Goldman Sachs also turning more negative on China. China, too, saying it sees virtually no profit growth for companies in the MSCI China index this year, due in part to the country's property crisis. But fears of a U.S. recession is truly what's dominating the economic discourse. Numbers out late last week show U.S. business activity contracting for the first time since the start of the 2020 COVID lockdowns. 
And the fear is we could see two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth when the U.S. releases its preliminary look at second quarter GDP this week. However, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and others are quick to point out that it's hard to call a recession when the jobs market remains robust and consumers keep spending. This current economic climate, clearly a unique one among many, posing a unique set of challenges for central banks too. Joining us now is Adam Posen. He's the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics and a former Bank of England policy maker. Great to have you with us, Adam. And um, we are seriously in need of your brain. I guess the question is, when is a recession not a recession? And if we do get a negative growth print for the US economy this week, will you be calling it a technical recession? Help us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And these are critical issues beyond all our brains, but let's try to sort through it. Especially we on Monday almost never. <laughs> we almost, yeah, Monday, Monday problems this week. Uh, we almost never see the kind of job growth we've been seeing in the U.S. ever um, that we've seen over the last year. And then essentially never when GDP growth or total income, total production is going down. So, First thing to think about is maybe the data is wrong, that GDP is an assembled data point that gets revised. The labor market data gets revised occasionally, but it's much more dependable because the government knows who's employed and who gets taxed and who applies for unemployment insurance. So the odds are that growth is actually higher than what the GDP number is telling us. And there is a number called GDI, which tries to accumulate income rather than product, and these should match. But in the end, GDI is positive, even though GDP is negative in terms of growth. So putting that all together, it's looking really strange, but the odds are what we're having is lousy growth, not negative growth, and therefore not a recession, just something to watch. So you're saying actually put more trust in what we're seeing in the jobs market, which suggests a stronger economy than than the the growth numbers that we saw in the first quarter and are likely to see this week. And yet, if I look at the business survey data and I listen to the noises that we're hearing, particularly from some of the biggest CEOs in the country, there's a recessionary feel. But is it more slowdown, to your point, rather than recession? I think the odds are it's more slowdown than recession. And it's it, it's important not to get too caught up in the word recession, as right. some of your viewers know. And you know, NBER, this think tank based in Cambridge, it's nonpartisan, has a committee that's called the Business Cycle Dating Committee, and they determine when a recession gets that label. What we really care about is whether the economy is into a down state, well below normal trend growth, employment shrinking, production shrinking. And we don't really have signs we're in that state of affairs. A slowdown, I do think, is more likely. Now, the forward-looking things you mentioned, like business plans for investment or people's confidence, which is a little less reliable, those do still say we got a high chance of recession coming, meaning the economy not just looking slow, but genuinely slowing down. And that's something the Federal Reserve and the government has to factor in. So, I mean, I was just about to say we actually had a fun conversation with David Rubenstein of Carlisle Group on the show where he was talking about a U.S. administration that he was involved with. They wouldn't talk about the word recession. They would use the word banana because they literally didn't want to uh, continue to try to talk the economy into a recession, which is a separate point, too, and a very important one as well. Um, 
So the Federal Reserve is going to hike, we think, three quarters of a percentage point this yeah. week. And they also have to look at all of these different data points and, and the measures and what the market's saying too. Because if you look at consumer measures of inflation and you look at market-based measures of inflation like break-evens, they are coming down. So there's this sense that perhaps the Federal Reserve is having been behind what it needed to be on top of it now, or at least up to date on, on taking action to try and bring prices down. But what I don't see a lot of discussion about is the time lag between talking about policy, the reaction in financial markets and the tightening, and then the reaction ultimately in the economy to slow it down and then bring prices down. It's tough to get a gauge of how much when and how much more is required when that time lag is is in effect. Yeah, it's difficult to get a gauge because it's genuinely hard. I mean, we, the central banks even doing their job well, don't know. The world is a complicated place, um, but they know better than most other people and they have less bias when they look at it. So I think your characterization is fair, that the path they're on, which is to raise rates by somewhere up to somewhere between 3.75 and 4 by February, is the right path. They were late in getting on that path and we can litigate whether they would have spared us some problems now if they had acted earlier. But right now, I think what the markets have, as they say, priced in is the rates going up between now and February to a little below four, that the long-term inflation expectations say that's consistent with low inflation, and that we've had a significant decline in the equity market in stocks and starting to see a bit of decline in housing prices and production without huge financial dislocation like we've seen in past recessions, like in 2008 in particular. And so to me, the Fed is on roughly the right course. It could still turn out to be wrong. Uh, As my colleague Olivier Blanchard at Peterson, our board vice chair Larry Summers have recently published with us, you can look at the labor market data a different way and say the labor market is still overheating. There's still too much demand for too few workers in which case they believe that inflation is not going to slow down based on what the Fed's doing. And the Fed's going to have to raise rates well past 5%. If they're right, what we should see is a reacceleration in wage growth over the next few months, in which case then the Fed will know they have to keep going. But the latest data is that wage growth is now down roughly to 4% across the whole economy, which is consistent with a low rate of inflation going forward. So I'm hopeful the Fed will be able to get away with doing only this much. The short phrase I was looking for for my exceptionally long-winded question before was it's an imperfect science. <laughs> What's the level well, of You didn't inflation? give me the cue card, so I couldn't see. <laughs> I know. Your phrase, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll do that for next time. Um, what's the level of inflation Adam, do you think that they're looking for that will allow them to say, fine, now we've done enough, no more tightening required? It's a good question. I, I, I think in practice, what they're looking for is getting well below 5% with clear indications that inflation is on the downtrend and 5% on the headline, what's called headline inflation. Um, in, in reality, the Fed is tracking what's called core PCE, which generally runs a half a percent lower than headline. Uh, It's constructed a little differently. It's meant to be less volatile. And right now it's running a lot below headline because of energy and and food and things like that. 
So I think they have to be well below five and headline and with a clear downtrend for them to say, okay, we've done enough or close to enough. The other point is it's very likely we're going to see a drop in the headline quite substantially over the next few months. You talked about the lags between when you do something and when it hits inflation. Right. You know, a lot of the changes, the gas prices coming down, um, food prices coming down, the wage demands coming down, those are all going to start to filter into the inflation over the next few months. Okay. I think the um, the key takeaway of, of many great points of this, though, is that if we do get that negative print in GDP this week, don't automatically call it recession and most definitely don't panic. Good takeaway. Don't panic. Keep yeah. calm and carry on because the labor market's more reliable than the GDP number. We got it. Adam, great to chat to you, sir. Thank you so much. Adam Posen there, the president of the Peaceton Institute for International Economics. We'll speak again soon, sir. Thank you. Okay, up next, dancing despite the darkness. The show goes on for Odessa's ballet dances, even as Russia targets the city. That's next. Welcome back to First Move and a return to Ukraine, where Russian missiles hit the port of Odessa Saturday less than 24 hours after Moscow agreed a deal to restart grain export. The city has been enduring severe attacks for weeks, but amid the horror, the dancers of the Odessa ballet are determined to bring hope as Ivan Watson reports. There is great beauty in Ukraine amid the pain and suffering. In the southern port city of Odessa, dancers in rehearsal try to tune out Russia's deadly war. This is more than just a beautiful expression of art and culture. Against the terrible backdrop of this war, these dancers offer a symbol of defiance, a sign that Ukrainians are not giving up. The Odessa Opera and Ballet Theater stands like a jewel, albeit one protected by sandbags. Though Russian rockets and missiles periodically pound Odessa, residents here cling to pre-war normality. And that includes the city's 135-year-old opera. Vyacheslav Chernukovolich is the opera's director. It's beautiful. Do you still need opera and ballet when uh, there is a terrible war? Yes, uh, all people need need this, uh, and uh, it's very important for society. Uh, opera house is the symbol of uh, good life. It's uh, <laughs> you hear this. The good life tonight's ballet performance. But amid preparations, there's an interruption. An air raid siren warns of a possible attack. I'm ushered downstairs. This says shelter. Musicians and dancers wait in the basement. The threat delays the start of the show. Two of tonight's solo ballerinas try to stay limber. No, no, this is not normal. (laughs) Why are you sitting here? Because uh, war. War, yes, in uh, our country. Are you afraid? Uh, Yes, of course we're afraid, says Katerina Kalchenka. Though we're getting accustomed to these threats, and that in itself is horrible. After a long delay, the opera gets the all clear. Audience members emerge from their own shelter and take their seats. In case of the name rate alert, all people must proceed to the shelter 
Glory to Ukraine. The music of Chopin fills the hall. And for the briefest of moments, the war seems very far away. The reality, though, is some of these performers sent their children away for safety to other countries. A number of the artists and crew are defending their country, serving in the Ukrainian armed forces, while those on stage struggle to keep the city's cultural spirit alive. Soloist Katerina Kalchenka crosses herself before entering stage right. But after just a few steps, the curtain suddenly closes. Bad news. The third air raid siren of the night has just gone off. The curtain just came down and the show has been brought to a stop. Which we didn't I want the whole world to start screaming, Kalchenka tells me to stop this horror so that innocent people and children stop dying. I ask for help, the ballerina says, and for people not to remain silent. Ivan Watson, CNN, Odessa, Ukraine. Now to a CNN exclusive tied to fears of Chinese espionage. Sources say an investigation by the FBI has determined that equipment made by Chinese tech giant Huawei could capture and disrupt some Defense Department communications in the United States, including those involving the nation's nuclear weapons. CNN's Katie Bo Lillis joins us now. Katie Bo, you certainly have our attention on this. What more did the investigation find? So this investigation dates back to at least the Obama administration and was ultimately briefed up to the Trump White House in 2019. The FBI knew that these small rural telecommunications carriers in the Midwest were using Chinese-made Huawei equipment on top of their cell towers in places like Nebraska and Colorado, where there's a lot of sensitive military installations to include U.S. nuclear missile silos. Now, the companies say that they were using this equipment because it was cheap and it was reliable, but the FBI, in the course of its investigation, was able to determine uh, that the equipment had the capability to recognize, intercept, and potentially even disrupt uh, restricted Defense Department communications, potentially offering China a pivotal and very dangerous window into the command and control for America's nuclear arsenal. Uh, As one source familiar with the investigation described it to us, this goes into the BFD territory. Um, The FBI, in the course of this investigation, also realized that the leading regional provider, Viero was placing traffic and weather cameras atop many of its towers across the region and then live streaming them as a public service, which, of course, is great if you want to see whether or not you're going to run into a traffic jam on your way to work that day. But for counterintelligence officials, raised concerns that China would be able to monitor those live streams and then track sensitive military movements across the region to determine if there were any patterns. Now, the combination of these two things, of course, was enormously disturbing to counterintelligence officials here in the United States and came at a time in which the U.S. has become increasingly concerned about what many officials describe to us as a dramatic escalation of Chinese espionage on U.S. soil over the past decade. Even more alarming to many of the officials, current and former, familiar with this investigation who spoke to us for this story is the fact that this equipment, three years on, is still in place. 
Wow. I mean, regular viewers of this show will recognize that Huawei, of course, was mentioned under the Trump administration. Their technology was was sanctioned and limited in, in many ways. But three years on, Katie Bo, why has this not been changed? If there are concerns, does it come down ultimately to cost? That's that's exactly it. The FCC in 2019 issued a rule that mandated that these companies had to remove the Huawei, ZTE, and other sort of blacklisted um, Chinese-made technology uh, from atop their from atop their towers. But the FCC this year, uh, again, three years on, has said that there's a $3 billion shortfall in the amount of money that Congress has appropriated to reimburse these companies to rip out all this equipment uh, and start over again. So, again, here we are three years on from when the FBI initially uh, briefed this investigation up to the highest levels of government um, and three years on from when the FCC issued its rule uh, demanding that companies uh, do what's called rip and replace and remove Mm. this equipment it's still in place. Yeah, and of course, Huawei themselves have denied that their equipment can be used to spy on uh, on U.S. infrastructure, but um, here we are. Precisely so. Katie Berlillis, great to have you with us. Thank you for that and great reporting. Okay, after the break, stronger than an ox? Ox Global, the electric truck company looking to revolutionize delivery in Rwanda. That's up next. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stock markets are up and running for the first time this week. And it's been a pretty volatile start. Stocks losing a lot of the momentum that we saw pre-market as we await key earnings and economic data later this week. I blame all our recession chat this morning on the show. Not really. Apple, surely one of the most consequential earnings reports of the week. Investors fear the company will report flat sales compared to last year. The firm could confirm plans to slow hiring and spending too. So that's what we're watching for. Bloomberg reporting today that Apple is taking the unusual step of offering discounts on high-end phones sold in China. An admission perhaps that China's slowing economy is also pressuring sales. Apple, just to give you a sense, down some 13% so far this year. A much better performance, however, than lots of its tech peers. To Rwanda now, and if you want to get goods to market over tricky terrain, you'd probably use a bicycle or a motorbike. And for a business owner, that could put a serious limit on your ambitions. Ox Global is a British Rwandan startup that is looking to change that. Its flat-packed electric trucks go where other trucks can't, all while carrying up to two tonnes of cargo. That's roughly 20 times what one could carry by bike. And being an EV, its daily running costs are 50% less than a vehicle with a diesel engine. Simon Davies is Managing Director of Ox Global, and he joins us now. Simon, fantastic to have you on the show. The problem that you're trying to solve, and it's something you've named, is, is transport poverty, poverty, the inability of small businesses and entrepreneurs to transport goods swiftly, efficiently, and, um, and economically. And that's where your trucks come in. Absolutely, Julia. Um, transport poverty is a major problem in lots of emerging markets. Uh, places like Rwanda are very fertile countries, but um, they so often can't get the things they grow and the things they make to market. You know, just imagine being a farmer and having 250 pounds of potatoes, and the only way you can move them is on a bicycle up and down with what is one of the hilliest countries in the world. It's an extraordinary challenge, and it really caps what people can do uh, in an otherwise productive place. So the choice is burning hours and hours and I assume days in some cases of 
manpower transporting this by bikes and, and motorbikes, you're offering an alternative. And it's a, a truck that's effectively been built for this terrain. I have to say it's not the prettiest EV truck I've ever seen, but explain how it's been adapted to tackle this kind of terrain, which is key. Yeah, so, you know, the sort of narrative around EVs is about making them go really fast and all that. But actually, EVs are great at going slowly. They're great at hauling heavy weights up hills. And what's really good about them, as you said earlier, is that they cost very little to fuel and they have very little maintenance. So what we've done here is really designed the first truck that's purpose designed for the dirt roads of emerging markets. You know, the vast majority of roads aren't paved. So you need a truck that's really robust. And also you need a truck that's easy to repair and that you can operate day in, day out, because this is all about having lots of uptime. It's not a truck that's going to sit on somebody's drive and be used once a day. This is 24-7 almost moving of goods uh, for entrepreneurs. So the first thing I know my viewers are going to be saying, because we talk about it on the show all the time, charging. What about charging technology? Well, the great thing about when you use electric trucks for a business is you know where your trucks are and where they're going and coming to and from, you know, with, with personal transport, you kind of have what I call the granny problem. You know, what happens if your granny falls ill and lives on the other side of the country and you've suddenly got to get in your car and drive doesn't really work with an electric truck. But when you're operating a business, like businesses thrive on consistency, people grow stuff in places and they consume stuff and make stuff in different places. So you plan the routes according to what the truck will do and um, and for us um, we will have our trucks in depots so we'll have our charging facilities at the depot um, and the great thing about it is you know it's a real win-win people talk about there not being enough energy and not much electrification in Africa and places like that but the real challenge is productive use the great thing about a truck is it's a really fast way of turning sunshine into solar energy into cash um, it's a really fast cycle and really drives economic growth. I'm still caught up on the granny problem, but we'll, we'll skip over that as a, as a technical term. Um, let's be clear as well. No, wait, no, I want to move on because you can you can you can weave it sure. in. Um, I want to, people to understand the business model. You're not selling these trucks. You're operating them. What you're doing is allowing via mobile phone people to book space and they can pay for space. Yeah. Now, they can't pay on the app. So you're going to have to explain the, the payment system that you've set up, too, because that comes down to bartering, I believe, between the, the drivers and the, individual, um, the individuals who want to sell. How does that work? And are you going to progress to being able to pay on the app, too, to, to formalize it in some way? Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, our, our customers are the people who will never buy a car. Perhaps three right. billion people in emerging markets are never going to be able to afford to buy a car. What they do with us is that they pay for space on a truck. And if they need £100 worth of space or 100 tonnes worth of space, they can do that. Um, and as you said, they, they call us up or they do it via a mobile app. Now, in, in most emerging markets, there's something called mobile money. So lots of people pay using that, which is a, which is a separate app on a, on a 2G phone. Which, so the, uh, you can basically send money between phone numbers. So about half of our money comes in via that solution. And the other part comes in uh, via cash. Um, and it's important to, to recognize what our drivers do. Our drivers aren't just drivers. They're so much more than that. They really use their local knowledge to, to find customers and to agree the prices that make sense uh, for those customers um, and, and build the business you know, as entrepreneurs from the bottom up. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. If it allows them to grow their businesses, then that's 
Um, that's huge. How do you make money, Simon? And I know you've raised money. Are you, are you looking to raise more money because you, you clearly need to scale this up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this this is a profitable business. I think, um, you know, we, we set out and one of the first things we did was we started some operations uh, in Rwanda to really establish whether the revenue was there. And, right. and we've just been blown away by the demand. You know, perhaps, you know, perhaps on a given day, we only are able to serve about 20 percent of the customers that ring us up. And that's because transport is really valuable. You know, when you move something, you make it more valuable, whether it's you know, if you take a banana on a tree, it's worth very little. If you put it in a Sheraton and sell it to a, a tourist, it's worth a lot. And so by moving goods, we enable our customers to create value, which we can share in. So this is very much a for profit business. We're raising capital as a startup. But the good thing, the really exciting thing about this model is it's a real win win, because when we make money, our customers mm-hmm. make money and that drives economic and social impact. Yeah, this is phenomenal. And particularly when we're talking about food products as well, that time, the time to get to market is so important because you reduce spoilage as well. Um, Simon, we look forward to your progress. And as you said it there, you are looking to raise money. So if anyone's looking at at helping communities build businesses and build stronger businesses and then facilitate a startup too, then they know where you are. Simon, great to chat. We'll keep in touch. Simon Davies, Managing Director of Ox Global there. Thank you. Okay, coming up. Is this what they mean by foul play? You decide the moment a chess-playing robot goes rogue. After the break, stay with us. The Space Race 21st Century Style. You're watching the moment China successfully docked a new laboratory module to its space station under construction. The docking marks the penultimate phase as China aims to compete, complete its orbital outpost by the end of the year. Three astronauts were on board to witness the docking in orbit. The last component for the Chinese station is set to launch in October. And finally, a quick move at the Moscow Chess Open nearly cost one player his finger. The seven-year-old boy was up against a chess-playing robot. Tournament officials say after making a move, the boy didn't give the robot a chance to respond, causing it to malfunction, grab his finger and break it. Bystanders rushed to help the boy get free. The good news is he finished the tournament with a cast on his finger. Blaming the boy and not the robot. I see. Plenty to say about that, but no time. And that's probably a good thing. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. Connect the world. Becky Anderson is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.